Bonjour, ni hao. Como estas? This is John James and welcome to Champagne Strategy. This is a red pill business podcast which deconstructs world-class strategy focusing on growth, marketing and sales with just a sprinkling of tech and champagne. Anyone can talk about and draft strategy, but execution is increasingly where the battle is won. Connecting these phases is very challenging and those who do it well will be at the top of their game. These people move in very tight circles and they'll have battle scars to show, skin in the game and money in play. Learning from their practical wisdom is priceless. So it's my job to find the best people in the world and convince them to be interviewed for the benefit of all. Listen to this episode if you dare, but you've been warned, there's no going back. I think the test of a good book is that it permanently changes the way you think for the better. And of course, this really depends on your situation. How many books you've read prior to the topic, you know, your general skill in the area. But before I left for a stint working in a growth role inside of a Silicon Valley startup back in 2017, I stumbled upon a book that had just been released. And this book was called Hacking Growth, written by Sean Ellis and Morgan Brown. It was really one of the first books to expose some of the hidden secret source to the exponential growth that many tech companies were achieving at the time. And this is written by someone who was actively doing it, not just preaching or espousing other people's wisdom. So if you work in a growth role, I'd be very surprised if you haven't read this book or don't know who I'm talking about. If you're in marketing or product or a founder, it's really probably a book you need to read. And while Sean has been interviewed countless times and also has his own high quality podcast, which talks about everything growth, I wanted to ask him the questions he hasn't been asked before. I really wanted to probe deeper into the context of the first principles, what's changed, what hasn't, where we are right now and where he thinks we're going in the future. The examples he uses, I think everyone can relate to in this interview, and it hits really his core points home. And what comes out in the wash, though, is also a very sort of stark warning to a lot of businesses who are probably going to be on the wrong side of the modern business growth paradigm. So what exactly is growth? Is it just marketing rebadged or a variation of PLG? And what elements do you need it for it to be successful? Can growth principles be used effectively for non-tech businesses as well? In this episode, you'll find out things like the secrets that led to the meteoric growth of brands like Microsoft, Canva, Amazon, and HubSpot. You'll also find out how you can use the growth process to pick stocks that probably are going to outperform the competition. So if you don't learn something from this episode, then you haven't been listening. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Sean Ellis. Uh, welcome to the show, Sean. I've been wanting to talk to you for for ages, so thanks for taking the time out of your day. And of course, yeah. I, look, I, I think the last time we met, I was teaching you how to open a champagne bottle <laughs> at your office in in LA. And what have you been up to since then? Oh well, gosh, that was pre-pandemic, so we've we've all been up to a lot of different stuff since then, right? Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, a lot of the last couple of years was just sort of adjusting what had been a very a very like on-site, heavy travel around the world kind of schedule um, pre-pandemic to how do I how do I do these things more remotely? And uh, I know it was kind of funny in the in the early days of the pandemic, my income basically dried up to almost nothing. And I remember, you know, my yeah, I'm pretty honest with my kids. They're both in college, so that it's not like they're little kids where it would scare them. And I I said to them, uh, I I said. Yeah, I, I mentioned that my income had 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 dropped significantly, 
Um, and they're just like, should we be worried? And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm an information worker. And, and you know, the, the internet should make it so that uh, once I adjust, I should be fine. And, and yeah, that's, that's really how it turned out that I was able to, you know, I think at first you think about what are the things that you've done in person and how do you do them as well or, or try to get them as, as best as you can online. And then after a while, you start thinking about, what are the advantages of online and how can I do things even better? And so that was kind of the tran transition. And then, and then obviously you got to convince people as well, which is a, another part, part of that transition. But I feel like, um, I feel like actually my life will be much better post pandemic because I, I traveled, I think 150,000 miles in 2019 and it was just kicking the crap out of me. So <laughs> I'm not sure that would have been very sustainable anyway. Nice uh, frequent flyer miles. But yeah, look, I found um, we sort of lower that barrier, um, that sort of, I would say <laughs> it's a rational barrier of like not trusting people via video conference. So you've got a, a, a history of and a brand behind you, I, I would argue. So like, I don't think it's an issue for you. But um, yeah, like, I found it was actually easier to win work because now I was doing work in cities I wouldn't normally do work in. Yeah, when I don't think it's necessarily like a trust thing, I think it's more of, uh, it's more of, when I'm going on site, like I actually did my first back on site um, in Croatia maybe a month ago, but I'm going on site. Someone's not surprised that it's it's going to cost you know fifty thousand dollars for for a few days to to do some stuff. But you know the appetite to pay that same amount when it's being delivered over the internet pre pandemic would I I think it would have been impossible to for people to pay that. But now now my fees are almost the same whether I'm um in person on site or, uh, or doing it remotely. But again, like I, I think part of it is that I've adjusted, you know, it's all outcome based, you know, what are, what are we trying to achieve? And if you can figure out ways to take advantage of, you know, what, what maybe was totally concentrated in a single day before I can now spread out over a few days so that the team can actually, um, implement and, and work on some of the things I'm working with them on so that I think that, that they actually can do better when it's over multiple days, then, um, you know, it just wouldn't make sense for me to like pop into a country for a couple of hours and then go to other places and come back to that country for a couple of hours, you know, a couple of days later, it just it, like, it wouldn't have been practical, but online it's very practical. Yeah, I love it. Well, look, you know, today I want to talk to you just at a macro view about growth, and then we can kind of deep dive down into because that's, I would argue, your specialty. Some people call you the godfather of, and I yep. know you don't like to really go back to this phrase, and I want to talk to you about this with the hacking phase. <laughs> I, Have you I, I like on? that better than the grandfather. Sometimes I get that too. Uh, on the phrase of growth hacking? Yeah, yeah. Like some, I, I, I heard you sort of like, it was it has some connotations that perhaps don't really reveal the, the craft or the the sort of professional side of the discipline. Um, yeah, so you know, it's 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 one of those things. For for me, I you know when I coined the term, I obviously had very specific things in mind that it meant, and uh, and people got excited about it, and then then added their own definitions and other pieces to it. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think for me, the most important thing was to get people to rethink how growth works, and it was very effective in. You know, if I, I I could have just said some boring name for this, and and people probably wouldn't have noticed. But when you when you come up growth hacking, it sounds it sounds just weird enough that I think it caused people to take pause and actually think, what the heck is this? Should I be paying attention? A lot of people got pissed off. They like I I have an MBA from an Ivy League school in marketing. I don't want to 
suddenly have results be what what drives reputation here. I, I want credentials, you know, and and so I think some people maybe got a little scared of it, but um, there's definitely there's definitely people who've like now said, oh, it's time to move on, and I, you know, for me, I think it's more about. Um, I don't really care about the semantics of what you call it. I think it's it's more about how do you effectively drive growth in businesses and what what works and what doesn't work and how much of it is process, how much of it is is kind of uh, you know authority and access and trust and and you know working cross functionally together and um, you know that that ultimately what I had in mind for growth hacking was. You know, something that's been around for a long time, which is essentially taking the scientific method that you know, it's been around for hundreds or thousands of years and just essentially applying it in a, in a test, learn, analyze way to figure out how to more effectively drive growth in a business. Well, I mean, that was kind of my, one of my first questions was the difference, you know, what is growth? Is it, is it a process? Is it just the name of a discipline or is it, is it about the outcome? What do you say to that? Yeah. So for me, I think the biggest, the biggest kind of like, I, I'm not sure you can actually say it yes to any one of those things of what it is. It's, it's, it's really all of those things. It's kind of, you know, there's a process to growth. There is a um, set of skill sets or set of skills that you need to be able to execute growth. And, and then there's also, you know, the cross-functional piece. Um, an organization has to be supportive to allow you to step outside of what would be a traditional uh, silo and 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 execute across you know multiple levers of growth and so um, you know I, th- I think it starts with how does growth really work and what are the things that you can do to accelerate it and um, and and then you know how do you how do you put together a team or have you know a single person that maybe has a whole bunch of skills in an early stage company or a team in a later stage company and and give that team like your authority and and permission to be able to drive improvements across different areas of the business. So it's you know if I had to boil it down to a really simple definition, I would essentially say it's a it's a test learn approach that you're doing really across all parts of the business. So it's not just you know test learn is very basic for marketing. It's something that especially in online marketing that's it's been table stakes for you know decades at this point. Um, but the the challenge is that when you really look at how growth works, core inside products, the, the product led growth side of things, um, is are, are really powerful levers for growth. But but product teams tend not to be as as test learn driven in in how they approach growth. They're more, more kind of feature roadmap driven, and so you want to be able to look at the big picture and apply that same test learn approach that marketers have been doing top of funnel really deeper in funnel but not just not just thinking funnel but also how to how to drive more engagement over time how do i drive more referrals over time uh just just really what what is what is that entire landscape of growth opportunities look like and how do I drive improvements across that landscape of opportunities? Yeah, look, and I really want to talk about this because you touched on so this. I, I started simple and I got way more complicated. 
<laughs> no, that's great. And, and I wanted to dive into that because before I read growth, I was a trained marketer like you. I noticed you were in Hungary and you were in doing advertising and marketing primarily, I think originally early on there yeah. in your career. And then you went right. to growth. So you have a really good perspective. And what I've noticed is that uh, traditionally, you know, we've got hierarchical bureaucratic organizations, you have natural silo effects happening. And growth really, mm-hmm. in my experience, needs to be cross-functional because there's failure yeah. points in, in, a, in that disconnection between any of those functions. So what's happened um, right. over time is that, you know, product is over there, marketing's been boxed into a comms role, increasingly so in, in a lot of bigger companies. Maybe it's mm-hmm. changing now, but so that's separated. And then you've got product over there, you know, pricing sort of has gone off to the finance thing. And then some of the core marketing strategies gone to management consultants. So you've got these like these very disconnected teams. I'm interested to hear from you, like um, what are some of the biggest barriers to, to getting into this growth mindset of test and learn versus I, I know what I'm doing. You know, I know how customers work. I've been doing advertising for 50 years. You know, this is this is the growth lever. You know, it's a new ad campaign versus, well, actually, you know, there's a lot of complexity here. If we really want to drive this revenue, we have to look at X, Y, Z. That's a very simple example. But like, right. So um, you know, one of the things that I have you know, especially since we published our book now almost, I guess, four or five years ago, kind of, kind of getting, um, it's, it's been around for a while and, uh, and, and pretty quickly on, we, we heard from a lot of people that were really excited about it. They're like, Oh, this, this makes all kinds of sense. Like, okay, I, I need a core metric that reflects value in the business. And I need to think about different ways to move that metric through experimentation. I love it. I'm going to go do it. And then they went to their business and they got frustrated really quickly because, because the only place where they were allowed to do any testing was in their area of expertise. So maybe they're a product person and then they could maybe do it in product. More likely they were a marketing person. And so again, they were just, they were just able to do it top of funnel. And so I, I think the, a lot of my focus over the last few years has been how do you how do you actually make the organizational changes so that so that you can actually do this within an organization and it's it that that cross functional piece is surprisingly hard and so i think that's where you have to actually get everyone across the business looking at growth in the same way and and starting to use the same language around how they talk about growth and and then once people understand growth in the same way, then you can start to think, okay, for us, how are we going to approach it? And that's where you don't necessarily need to be dogmatic and have an exact right way that you approach it within the organization. Sometimes it's a single, very talented growth hacker who's going to be dropping into a lot of areas. Um, more often, it's going to be more of a cross-functional team that's got some great design skills, analytic skills, copywriting product management skills who, who are going to be able to you know design experiments and implement those experiments um, but you know I, I think I've seen so many different formulas work that I don't think it comes down to this is the perfect formula I think it's much more about the the whole team needs to be on the same page more broadly about this is how customers get value from our product and this is how new customers become passionate customers and how do I how do I actually get, uh, you know, what, what are all the things that I can do to make those uh, new customers into passionate customers at, at make that happen faster and, and, and at a higher percentage of those, those new people becoming passionate customers? Yeah, I think just to give you some feedback. So when I read your book, because, you know, again, marketing 
covers some things. But then um, the big takeaway for me was the test and learn sort of solidifying that that ethos. Number two was the referral lever, mm-hmm. which I think still mm-hmm. to this day, even in traditional firms, is not used as much as it could be to give that coefficient above one. That was the big takeaway for me. And I think I want to hear from you, but what do you think the biggest differences are between someone coming from a marketing, even a strategic marketing kind of field, which is the, the four Ps instead of just comms? Uh, what do you think the biggest difference between that yeah. is and, and then growth? You know, what would they have to learn that they're, they're probably not being exposed to or missed out on? Yeah, you know, I think if they if they truly are approaching it in the four P's way, then then it's the, they're probably approaching growth in in the way that that the best growth people would. But in tech companies where where you have that feedback loop of being able to really see what does the machine look like. If I run an experiment, did the machine get better? Like you, you have a lot more transparency there. And in in the tech world, most marketers aren't aren't really respected when it comes to product. They're just not they're not trusted and respected. They're just not technical enough to get in there and start messing with code. And so I think that's the I think that's the issue for a lot of companies. So we we learn about the four P's as as kind of conceptually how marketing works, but marketing. Yeah, you know, I, I think what you what you've seen is it move toward uh, performance based marketing, which is a good thing. So it's definitely beyond comms. So it's it's around what's my allowable acquisition cost of a customer? How can I go out and through lots of testing acquire lots of customers within that allowable acquisition cost? But there's not a lot of work in terms of how do how do I expand that allowable acquisition cost? What is it that prevents new people from really experiencing the product in the great way? And, and that's where I think a lot of, a lot of it falls apart. And that's, that's, you know, kind of what you were touching on before that, um, marketers, if they do, if they do that deep dive kind of search into why am I not able to scale these marketing campaigns more effectively? Most of them are going to realize because that, that customer onboarding experience is, is much less optimal than it could be. So it's not just, you know, I think a lot of people kind of go to conversion rate optimization and they think. I'm going to A-B test some landing pages, but it's not even A-B testing landing pages. It's it's deep into product. Like it might be as much as what are, what are the first 10 times they use the product? How does that product uh, evolve? And I, I think what's, what's interesting is you see a lot of people with games backgrounds who've done really well in growth roles because that's kind of how games work. You know, if, if I... If I put people into, you know, level 25 of Angry Birds, look, look back at a game that was popular a while back, but I think most people know what I'm talking about. They would go, what the hell is happening? There's, there's birds flying everywhere. So it starts out really easy and simple. And then, but if they kept it really easy and simple, you get bored really quickly. So, so they kind of spoon feed this experience over time. So the onboarding is not just in a single session, it's across multiple sessions to getting you to a point where that product becomes indispensable for you. And that's just so much beyond what most marketers are um, allowed to, to really kind of drive that experience. That's That fits more within the product team. But in my experience, most product teams look at the product not as how do I make it more accessible to new users? They're looking at the product as what are the two or three features that will make this indispensable for my existing users? And 
and we're two or three features away from not even needing marketing anymore because this product is going to be amazing. And so, but, but the big fall off is all these new customers who are never able get, to get to a great experience in the product. And, and that really requires that, you know, either product and marketing work closely together or someone fills that gap in trying to, trying to really uh, curate an experience in the product that um, makes it indispensable for new users. And if that, if that can happen, then you retain users. And if you can retain users, then you can drive long-term growth in a business. So retention is ultimately what we're shooting for, but retention is, most people, when they think retention, they think, uh, you know, how do, how do I send more reminder emails to come in and use the product or more notifications to use the product where retention is much more a function of core product value and experiencing that core product value. And so, um, you know, I, I think that's, it's, it's, it's unfortunately a lot more complex when you look at growth on that level, it's instead of just a bunch of tactics, but that's how it works. And so it starts with understanding how it works and then thinking about as a team, how can you effectively manage that engine to make it work much better? Just coming back to how we can apply this maybe in other sectors, because I know you do a lot of work in software and, and as do I, but I, I started in services, which is complex, but there's parallels. I find I can use, some, yeah. in fact, I'll have to admit to this, I've, I've used some of your diagrams that I really like your growth engine diagrams. And I think visually mm -hmm. that gets across the concept in a way that perhaps these other traditional organizations have never even thought about like, oh, a looped feedback loop process, you know, or continual right. improvement. Oh, this is new, you know, or they're trying to artificially do it through some agile teams or you know, like some kind of buzzwordy, you know, project. So my, my trend that I saw two years ago was like Coca-Cola hired a CGO role or created a chief growth yeah. officer role. And there's a bit of a trend, oh, like let's let's fix our growth problems with creating a role uh, and name it growth. Right. And then they quickly last year reverted and got rid of that role and went back to just a CMO. I think there's parallels. Oh, I, I wasn't aware that they cut that role. <laughs> yeah, uh, so a lot of them, it was kind of trendy for a bit and now it's, it's gone out of favor. So that was really interesting. And what I noticed was that the more disconnected the organization is from the end customer experience, because you know Coca-Cola wasn't a DTC firm until now, it's kind of mm -hmm. really pivoting that way and so is pepsi right. there's that break in that that feedback loop because of just the natural distribution through resellers or wholesalers and then retailers they're not they're not incentivized for that feedback loop you know what i mean like it's an artificial loop because they're so separated from it so whereas you know when you when you're in a growth role in a software company like you are you control end-to-end -end everything from you know, the first experience to the last experience and you're incentivized right. for upsells and cross-sells and retention. Whereas perhaps, you know, if you work in a, a marketing role or growth role at Coca-Cola, you're really not. My question to you is what uh, concepts out of this growth process and maybe creating growth engines do you think can be applied to traditional organizations that perhaps haven't thought about that way before? Is there a missed opportunity there, do you think? I think it actually, you know, I've, I've, I've done kind of master classes and workshops where people will say, well, I'm in business to business. And so this doesn't really work for what I'm doing. And I'll point to examples that are like much more extreme, like even outside of business where, where that kind of mindset mentality and approach can make a big difference. And so, um, you know, I'll start with a business example that, that kind of, uh, steps way outside of digital. And that's, um, you know, for me, you know, I, th I, I think you're right that it's that, that closeness to customer that, that matters the most and the, uh, and the, 
and, and being able to kind of look through the eyes of the customer at a lot of parts of an experience. And so I remember, yeah, 10, probably 15 years ago now at Log Me In being at a trade show that, you know, essentially led to, led to the kind of epiphany that um, probably accounted for 50% of our, of our incremental revenue over the next six months came from this trade show. And it all started with, it all started with, you know, creating a booth where, where we walked the aisles and, and really tried to think, why would I stop into this booth? And so everyone traditionally at a trade show is all about, let me put my logo up here. If they haven't heard of you, your logo is not going to draw anyone into your booth. So what's, what's my product promise is probably a better hook. How do I make it how do I make it crisp enough that that it intrigues someone? And then, yeah, maybe I'm going to put some logo, but it, it don't lead with the logo, just you know, support with the logo. But then also, you know, walking down the aisles and looking at, you know, what is my perception from every angle of walking in? So it's kind of like you know a landing page in a sense. How do I how do I onboard into this booth? And then and then running experiments over time, like do I put the chairs on the inside of the booth? Or do I put them around the edges so that people who are tired of walking can are more likely to sit in the chair to where we can strike up the conversation and 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 start to learn more about them? And so this constant process of testing, where it's quality conversations, becomes the goal, but it's 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 so many other things that lead to those quality conversations. That's where it ultimately, you know, ultimately we came to a realization that uh, that gosh. There's a group of people that really need our product. In fact, a lot of them are already using our product, um, but we didn't know until we had those conversations how they were using it. And then, um, you know, we hadn't run surveys in a way we segmented or, or extracted that information. And then, secondly, um, you know, just this was a co a conference that was in London, and realizing there was a, di a dynamic in the European markets that made our product way more valuable in European markets. Largely due to kind of less flexible labor markets, that meant you know that that there needed to be um, that there was a, a a bigger outsourcing you know more formalized outsourcing group that turned out to be a really good customer for our remote support product, and so um, you know I, th I think it's that so that would be one example of just that kind of like understand how it works, get in the customer's head look at everything from the customer perspective, run lots of tests, even if they're not statistically significant, still running those tests to drive improvements, have a key metric around that. And that, that ultimately the goal is to, is to learn and understand. And so that, that was one place where it was really powerful for us. But another place totally unrelated was <laughs> coaching my daughter's soccer team and kind of doing a, uh, you know, money ball type, uh, money ball type, you know, experimentation and data of just literally, literally, you know, all the other coaches, they had one tool to try to drive performance, which is like yell at the kids. And you know, that's obviously not, not productive for the kids and not, not healthy for anything. And so kind of knowing that, okay, supportive, understand each kid and, 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 and really try to get them to love the game and, and feel confident and all kind of working the, the softer skills side, but then also, experimenting with lineups. So, you know, kids who've always played uh, offense, move them into defense for a little while and then tracking the data. And, and so if you just go on uh, 
score, there's not enough data there to, to really get much of a read. So shots on goal was more of my North Star metric. And so being able to you know, track all of that data, scramble lineups, know which lineups against which team resulted in the most shots on goal for their team, you know, against their, their goalie, and then most shots on goal against our goalie, and coming up with a formula that, that, ultimately, that ultimately led to um, a team that I, I think was not any more stacked on talent than any of the other teams, but, um, but ju- just ultimately a really fun season for a lot of the kids to where 10 minutes into each game, they had to, they had to back off and, and slow things down so they didn't embarrass the other team, you know? And, and, it, and it, I think it's just one of those things that, um, you know, that, that kind of like understand lots of data, lots of experimentation, um, and, you know, and then, you know, execution as well, knowing that you don't, you don't, you know, berate kids with, uh, <laughs> yelling at them, but, you know, understand, understand what their, um, areas of interests are and, and being able to really tap in and help them build confidence and love of the game and all those things that, um, ultimately, you know, if I, if I can apply it in a soccer field, if I can apply it in a totally analog trade show, I think when you look at almost any business, um, there's there's a lot of improvement that you can make when you when you really look at things through the lens of of the customers and you think about how do I drive improvement across experience and and in any type of business there is always um, I think there not always there's a few businesses that are purely one time transaction business where it may not count but for most businesses it's almost a cliche at this point that, you know, a customer retained is much better than a customer acquired, but like that, that cliche has been around there for a long time, but there's not been a lot of details in the, how do you make that happen? And, um, and I think that how you make that happen is through a lot of experimentation and, and you can't really improve something you don't understand. So you have to really work to understand deeply what's going on. And then you improve that understanding through that experimentation. Well, that's a great segue because when we're in the software world, everyone wants to see this hockey stick growth, you know, this nonlinear growth curve. And it's when you get your investment and things like really take off and it's a rocket ship emoji, right? In my experience, what people don't see is the preceding 10 right. years where you've been doing that hard grind work and figuring out exactly what things make your market tick before you hit that inflection point. And some people say, oh, what, what happened around that inflection point? Yeah, like, exactly. You must have done something there you're exactly. like no actually it's like 10 years like how true is that in your experience that that sort of that long grind i think a lot of times there is the we did something there um in fact i i just had a uh, a guest on my podcast um that essentially they, they they said they were three weeks from having to close the business and they figured out one thing that put them on a trajectory to where now now they're they're definitely on track to unicorn status and wow. it, it's not what you would normally think. It was, a, it was a change in the business model. It was, it was essentially saying our assumptions around how we're going to monetize this are, are off. I think if we approach the monetization this way, it'll work. And, and they were literally being pushed by their investors. You need to sell this business. You're not going to be able to raise money on this business. And it was, you know, we, we got two more things that we can try while we parallel that effort to sell the business. And then just this, this business model tweak fixed it. And so, you know, I, I think it's, um, I think a lot of times what's, what's not understood is that 
you know, there is that, that kind of, again, like kind of in the cliche of things, the nail it and then scale it. I think a lot of times the nail it is assumed to be, I got the product right. But the, the nail it is actually, I got the product and the market figured out. I got the monetization figured out that's going to support the right customer acquisition channels. There's all these interdependencies that are essentially a puzzle that you need to get those pieces to work. And you need to get, if you, if you have just one piece wrong, it's not going to be sustainable. And so I think a lot of times the inflection point happens when you figure out, okay, this is how those pieces fit together. Sorry, just to, just but in, um, you just reminded me of like I don't know how close you are with the yeah. Reforge and Brian Balfour, but he has that diagram of market product model. There's another thing, so it's like all four things have to be. There's a fit between all four to make growth to get to that hundred million mark or something. So is that kind of I don't know. That's a diagram, but I mean, is that kind of what you're alluding to? Yeah, but yeah, no, for sure. I mean, and I think I think it's one of those things. That's why it's kind of funny when you say like growth hacking is it in, is growth hacking out? I think that ultimately that ultimately there's kind of a universal truth of how growth works. And we're all we're all making incremental progress and figuring out figuring that out. And of course it's not exactly the same in every business. So it's it's kind of how it works in general and then how it works specifically for each of the individual um, businesses, but that once you once you figure those things out, that yeah, I mean it, it, it's definitely it, it's a huge part of what we teach in our in our Go Practice uh, simulation course. But not surprisingly, it would be an important part of what they teach in Reforge or anyone who's teaching growth. That there's you know we're all honing in on these kind of universal truths. I was gonna actually. Uh, reference one company that kind of got those pieces right um, on a on a podcast I'm actually publishing tomorrow, which is um, HubSpot. I know that's probably going to be out of sync with when this publishes because you're you're probably on as much of a delay as me. But um, <laughs> it's a uh, that that ultimately I I actually spotted from the outside when HubSpot nailed it. I um, I had been an individual investor in HubSpot pre-IPO um, through uh, an acquisition that they made of a, of a company that I'd been advising. So I had advisory shares in that company, and then, um, and then they rolled into HubSpot shares. And so I rode HubSpot for a little while and sold it, and, and then kind of just watched the business for a while. And then one day I looked at it and said, oh my God, I see how this all fits together. And it was essentially... When they when they shifted to a freemium approach to where to where I saw oh, this is going to be so disruptive to to the CRM space in how they had a really valuable free product that wasn't just a kind of um, I'm going to make it free. It's not as good as the other ones, but it was actually better than the premium costs of a lot of these others because they they automated a lot of the data collection that, that built out profiles on people. And so I started to look at just all these pieces coming together and I'm like, I see where they're going with this. And I think this will be huge. And so that was in 2017, November, 2017. And I made the biggest public market investment that I'd made in a really long time in the business, sent a note to Darmesh Shah, the, the founder of the CTO and founder of the business and said, Hey, I just see the elegance of, of your model and how this all fits together. And uh, want to let you know, I just got back in after selling out in the past. I'm, I'm excited about this and, uh, and, you know, congrats on, on getting here. 
since that point, their 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 stock is well over a thousand percent up. Unfortunately, I didn't hold it all the way there. I, you know, I made it hold it held it for multiple doublings, and then said, "Oh gosh, it can't keep going from here." But um, but I think that just sort of shows like the the example of that inflection of like, um, yeah, I could have been wrong, and I've been wrong plenty of times, but I'm at least deep enough in that business, and it had worked in in that space and in other related products as well. To where I said I, I really, based on my understanding of the market, based on on my own needs, based on the needs that I see out there, I think they're, I think this is the final piece that really nails it for them, and and uh, and their their revenue and and stock price and everything else has really followed suit from there. So I I think you can you can sometimes take it down to down to an inflection point, but again the the decision is rarely random. The decision is something that it's like, that's the last piece that you got right. And all the other pieces now are working in concert and you've got a model that you can now pour fuel. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, I have the story. I'm not sure if this is true. Maybe you know more about um, Canva. So that's the Aussie startup, the sort of template-based design program, which yeah. I saw early on. I'm like, oh, wow, because I do this. I'm like, this is going to save me so much time. And I could see the product iterations into different verticals. They've just released mm-hmm. the video product. And it was like, you know, this is just the start. You can kind of see how they're using that same core um, product, yeah, uh, yeah. like value creation, which is like ease of creativity, ease of creativity, yeah. right? And then yeah. the sort of, you know, anyway, I can kind of see the, the pieces of the puzzle come together. I'm like, oh, wow, that's, that's where it is. But I heard that their product was actually pretty bad uh, originally. And it wasn't until Guy... Uh, Kawasaki came and bought to be their evangelist that that and it took off and that was their inflection point was just an evangelist who then got the investors on board raised the round introduced to the right people he was obviously getting a kickback you know a, a large incentive um, yeah. yeah for for his work um, and it's done really sure. well but obviously then that sort of opened them up to the resources and to hire the right talent to then kind of take what he could see probably at that early stage is like okay they're onto something here but they need to execute in a different way and get a better team together, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then they took off from there. I heard that, but I don't know what. What are your thoughts yeah. on Canva? Yeah, so interestingly, I I met with the Canva team in Sydney um, pretty early in the in the business. Like, I had no idea who they were. I just said, "Who are the Who are the teams I should meet with while I'm in Sydney?" And um, and yeah, I, I I was like, "It seems pretty neat." I didn't. I, I definitely didn't have that same kind of epiphany that I had with HubSpot. Um, but then, you know, a couple of years later, maybe three years later, um, my kids uh, it said to me, hey, dad, have you have you checked out the product Canva? I love this product. I use it all the time. And, they, you know, they were they were using it not for not in a business center. They're just students using it to put together cool graphics when they when they want to put something on Instagram. You know, j- j- essentially, it was such a pleasure to use that they that they they found just pleasurable ways to use it as opposed to as opposed to business ways. And that that triggered me to, to start re looking at it and using it again. But I, again, I had no idea that it was going to re I think, you know, $50 billion plus on their, their last round of uh, crazy funding valuation. Um, and uh, actually, yeah, I, I interviewed Georgia Vidler, their former uh, head of product on, on the podcast as well. And um, yeah, just fascinating, fascinating story. And, and again, I think it's getting all of those pieces, right. And, and particularly 
I'm a big believer in in free as a as a powerful driver of a of an effective growth model. And so, yeah, that's one thing that you see from Dropbox to them. To yeah, yeah. Sorry, just yeah. on that, that note, um, Kyle Polner from OpenView, he was doing this usage based yeah, yeah. pricing research, which is really interesting. And like, there seems to be a trend towards okay, it's it's not just about a free trial with like reducted feature lists. It's like, let's give you the whole experience, let's yeah. hook you in, and then let's like penalize you on the usage, right? Like, kind of like Zapier pricing, and that's the new trend. Do you think? Or? Yeah, I mean, and and I think sometimes it's going to be usage based. Sometimes it's going to be there's some other things like in, in my case, I upgraded to Canvas Premium when there were just like a, a few features that I wanted access to that I didn't have in the free. And yeah, and again, it's one of those things that I'm actually a, like a pretty pretty like tight spender. You know, if I if I can get away using something for free, I'm going to generally <laughs> do, do the thing for free. But when you get so much value from something like with Canva, it's just like, I'm going to give these guys the benefit of the doubt that what's behind that paywall is probably totally worth it. And then, you know, and you go in there and if it's, if it's not differentiated enough, not enough incremental value, then maybe I'll, I'll go back to the free version. But, um, yeah, I think that's one of the arts of of getting it right. Is where where do you draw that line? Is it usage based? Is it feature based? Is it a combination? Um, you know, in the case of Dropbox, was definitely usage based, but uh, Log Me In was was uh, feature based, and you know both both companies reached multi billion dollar valuations. Dropbox more, but um, but yeah, I, I think I think. Uh, yeah, the the important part is you need a really valuable free product, and and I think for with freemium it comes back to what you were saying about you know referral loops. Like it it creates a natural evangelist loop. If you have something that's truly valuable and it's free, word's going to get out about it. But it for it to be a, a sustainable model, a viable business, you need to be able to drive revenue, and that's where ideally you have something that's, uh, you know, you've got a business model layered on the, on the paid product that is, uh, obvious on incrementally why I would need to upgrade it to it and, and the incremental benefits that I'm getting from it. So your biggest competitor becomes your free product. And so if you can't differentiate from your free product, you're, you're not going to probably drive enough upgrades to, to make an interesting business. Yeah, I love that. And look, um, just on the same note, like we kind of talked about like what the hallmarks of a good growth, you know, getting these pieces of the puzzle together. I know we talk pretty macro about this because there is a lot of nuance and finesse yeah. that doesn't translate from one company to another, different products. Like you kind of get to discover that for yourself and get in the nitty gritty, do those customer interviews, you know, troll that CRM data. Yeah. And, and sometimes you just need to experiment and like kind of like, you know, we tried a bunch of stuff and finally this was the formula that worked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So on the flip side, what are the hallmarks of growth done badly? Like I just mentioned, you know, putting a badge on a name and calling a chief growth officer or, or hiring <laughs> right. an engineer and calling them a growth person, you're like, well, actually, you know, that's not going to fix your problem. So like, where does growth go wrong in, in your opinion? What are the things you constantly see? Yeah, I, d I just think the the reality of where it goes wrong is, is companies that continue to be very siloed in their approach. Um, you know, there's, there's a single customer experience, a single customer is going through an experience and you got five different teams managing parts of that experience. That's going to be a crappy experience. And so... You, you need the team to look holistically at that experience. And, um, and so I think that's, that's the biggest mistake is that people just aren't, aren't taking the time to step back organizationally and say, say, first of all, how do we get on the same page around how people actually get value from this product? 
And then, and then what can we do cross-functionally to improve that and, and just approach growth in a different way? And so I think, you know, you can throw a growth person into the mix, but if you don't take that time to kind of unwind the old way of doing things, they're just going to bounce, you know, bump their head against the organization. And so I think the, you have two mistakes, either you throw a growth person or a growth team in an organization that doesn't, doesn't kind of get, get the work done on it that, that makes them to where they can be effective. Or you just say, forget this and, and just continue to operate in the, in the siloed way of the past. And the siloed way of the past, I think, you know, up until pretty recently, you could get by with that if you had a good product. But, um, if you, you know, today there's just enough companies that are doing things in the right way that, um, it's just really hard to compete, particularly in digital. I think in 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 purely analog businesses, if you know if you're Coca-Cola, for example, and you've got channel advantages, you got a bunch of other things there. Um, you you could be in good shape. But you you look at a company like um, like Microsoft. Microsoft was one of the first companies that I that I did a workshop with, and and on their crown jewel office group, and. Um, wow. It's not my workshop that made the difference, oh, but on. I did it at a time where right before they had a, a very big, a very big um, valuation increase to where they're now the most valuable business in the world. My workshop did not make that happen, but the directive from the top about rethinking growth holistically across that entire organization is what enabled my workshop and enabled a whole bunch of other programs that helped Microsoft adjust to now being one of the best in the world at these things where, you know, that's the one thing that you can say about that company is that they, you know, every time you write them off, they, they figure out how to adjust in and, and execute in the world in cutting edge best way. And so um, I think interestingly, I'm reading the second. Yeah, I read. I read the Amazon story, the Everything Store, and now uh, another book came out on Amazon recently. And and Jeff Bezos, uh, same author. Uh, I forget the name of the the book, but it's. Uh, I mean, it's just so clear that it's Amazon is completely about growth hacking. Like that's from from day one, from a you know test learn perspective. Jeff Bezos, our success at Amazon is a function of how many experiments we, we yep. run per day, per month, per year. Like everything is said, you know, and, and even I've, I, another quote that from this book is like, if you don't know your data inside and out, so he, he they do like randomly, they'll, they'll, they'll take like business unit leaders and they'll just like randomly spin a wheel and pick one who then has to walk everyone through the data inside and out and just understand their business on a very deep data level. You know, so you take that combination of I'm going to understand this business on a super deep data level. And then I'm going to take a very experiment driven approach to drive improvement. That's what we're talking about here. And, you know, again, Amazon right at the top of the most valuable companies in the world. Um, so, so like, I, I just think, I just think it's, it's a matter of time before, before you say, I mean, I'm increasingly, I'm working with, um, top fast moving consumer goods companies so that not traditionally digital companies that are also trying to embrace this. And I, you know, so I, I think that the, the ones that are 
not necessarily in the digital space that are are moving in this direction are you know if they get there first it'll be a superpower if they get there later it'll be a survival tactic but um but I, I you know it's it's about deeply understanding what's going on particularly from a customer need perspective and then how do I how do I drive improvement through experimentation is is what we're talking about here everything else is how do you actually make that happen which is all the organizational stuff that that makes it really hard. So conceptually, it's easy yeah. to get your head around it. In actuality, it's really hard to do. Easier said than done, right? Like um, I was talking to Kimberly. Um, she's a professor at actually I forget the the university, but she has this like she coins the inside out versus outside in perspective, and it's like organizations are either internally looking mm -hmm. and they, and and they're looking outside, or they're reverse engineering what the market is doing and using that as like their point of truth in the organization. Some of the things coming back to Jeff Bezos, um, people harp on about his his meeting methods about reading a memo and and not yeah. um, having powerpoints and stuff stuff like that. You know, that's just a function of like reducing that human bias that political grandstanding that sometimes like scuttles the productivity of a yeah, meeting yeah. um so you know that's like that ethos being reflected tactically in how you run a meeting rather but the ethos is the customer matters look at the customer you know what i mean like our meeting doesn't matter unless right, we're right. solving a problem or increasing value like you say some of the uh, leadership style of you know people like a jeff bezos or you know so, some of these highly successful leaders. I'm not sure I would want to work with them. They're so, you know, as an employee in some of those companies, they're so exacting, so high expectation. But, you know, I think it's important to to separate kind of the personality piece with what is it that helps them be super successful. Personality is probably part of that, but but I think it's just like the clarity of what they're trying to achieve and how they're trying to get people to operate is is really where the magic is. And Maybe if they could, they could do it in a way that was a little more uh, uh, easy, easy for people to feel really great about their jobs. Um, but, but maybe, maybe not. Like you know, again, I'm I'm reading interpretations from outsiders who are writing books, so I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure that that's, that gives a really clear picture. But I do think um, I do think it's pretty incredible when you look at these successful leaders and how they're how they've been able to create organizations that have so much discipline around data and so much discipline around how do we keep figuring out better ways to do absolutely everything. Yeah, I think it's kind of like a cultural thing, isn't it? It's like an orientation, like, you know, your culture is either one way, it's like siloed and hierarchical and political, or it's like, it's cross-functional, it's reducing those egos, you know, having that humility about yourself almost. And, you know, where we're sort of, acting at the whim of the customer and the market needs, not the other way around. Like there's only so far we can push this. So I think you know, there's organizations that worked in which are right. one or the other. And it's culturally like, I don't know, you must see this when you go to consulting as like some are just like very much the other way. <laughs> and some, I'm sure some of your work is easier to do than others. Yeah. And I, I mean, a lot of the more, the more they're entrenched in kind of old ways, the, the lighter my engagements tend to be because like I'm, uh, yeah, you know, like I'm, I'm not a miracle maker in being able to change 50 years of of culture building in a in a company. So, I you know at best I can do a lot of times in in certain organizations is, um, you know, get do a keynote that lets them know where things are headed and and uh, how the best companies are approaching it and plant the seeds to where to where people start to wake up across the organization and think about like we we need to start thinking about how we can approach those things and where where I have maybe had a little more direct contribution in, in larger um, uh, enterprise or larger you know, companies that are, are you know, kind of fixing cultures would be if they have a small digital unit to the business that um, 
isn't completely bogged down in, in a lot of history, um, then I, then I feel like I can, I can help drive the change. And then maybe that becomes the, uh, the, the prototype that the rest of the business starts to say, how do, how do we start to execute that way? But it's, uh, it's a big challenge. Like I, I definitely don't feel like I have all the answers. I, um, I feel like I have a much better understanding of the challenges and that's half the battle to coming up with the answers, but uh, still, still working on the right answers for each type of business. And it's interesting you said about investing because like, I've always thought like a really good hallmark of like, again, I'm not giving financial advice here and, and neither are you, you know, disclaimer. Um, but um, you know, if I see a business using that yeah. sort of growth method, right. I know that's a, that's a pretty sure bet that they're going to be reasonably successful. Um, and then if I'm comparing them to their entrenched competitors yeah. and there's a big disparity, I know, oh, well, if I was going to back a horse, you know, I'll probably put some money down on that one and, and see how it goes. Like you said with Microsoft, like I see that with yeah. Tesla. Um, I know they're probably over. Yeah. My biggest investment in the last year, I'll, I, whether it, financial advice or not, is uh, is in the travel space where I had a really bad, it's, it's owned by two companies. I had a really bad experience with one of the companies. And then while I was on hold for four hours, I, um, I researched the space and realized that the competitor who who uh, I wasn't dealing with has an NPS that's super high. These guys have an NPS that's super low. And I, you know, eventually, eventually that net promoter score is going, you know, and I already knew that the other company is very test driven and super sophisticated in data and how they approach growth. And so, you know, that combination of super passionate customers, really intentional about the test learn and, and, data side of things, I, I made a big investment that, you know, it's, it, it doesn't happen overnight, but it's, it's a bet that I, that I plan as a, as a long-term bet in, in this business. So somebody could figure it out by looking up, you know, which, which, uh, which of the travel companies have a better NPS, but, um, it's not just that NPS. It's the, it's the combination of passionate customers that are spreading the word plus knowing, as you said, that that the team is uh, really cutting edge in how they approach growth. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, one of my best friends works at UBS as a, as a valuation expert in, in the tech and media sector. We talk a lot about like how he sees things, but I come from a different perspective. You know, I come from, if I see that growth model being used, I'm like, well, that's that's good. So, you know, it's been interesting learning from him, his perspective and, then, and mine. But anyway, I digress. Um, again, we know about your book and I'll put it in the comments, but is there a book that you've read recently or now on this topic or just professionally? It doesn't have to be on this topic. Um, that has really sort of changed your mind or solidified some ideas for you. Yeah, as I, as I said, I, the the one I'm reading right now I actually think is really good. Um, yeah, it's, it's on Amazon. Amazon Unbound is the name of it. Amazon Unbound. Okay, great. I'm going to write that down and add it to my list. Um, what about favorite website resources that you would reluctantly share with people listening right now? Like kind of like your little go-to could be strategy, could be your own website. You know, I I would say the the best learning resource for me in the last two years has been um, my partner on the Go Practice uh, Simulator program. Anything he's written. So if you look up Oleg Yakubenkov and and his blog posts, they're I think they're they're very sophisticated, maybe beyond a lot of people because he's a former data scientist from Facebook. But he is also really good at simplifying things down to a level that um, that makes them super accessible. And I've, I've learned more about data and product from him than, and, and the sad part is he's like half my age, but, uh, <laughs> he's, he's, I've, I've probably learned more from him than anyone else in my career. And, wow. uh, 
it just shows maybe I'm a slow learner. <laughs> uh, maybe you have the political sort of now and presentation skills that perhaps he, he might not have. There you go. You know, um, <laughs> what about a piece of tech um, that you can't do with without every day that, uh, that makes you do your job better? It could be hardware or software. Uh, I would say amplitude. I just, you know, like given that it's a, they have a really generous free product and I can, I can pretty quickly understand what's going on in a business with uh, their analytics solution. Um, and and we, we actually have our go practices built on top of you're, you're working with live data and amplitude. So um, that helped me get a lot better at it as well, just uh, using it in, in this simulated environment. Nice. Okay, what about the best quote or meme you've seen on the topic of growth, which makes you laugh every time because it's so true? Yeah, I um, I wouldn't say that I necessarily laugh that they're so true, but I, I literally just scoured for a book about this guy because he's he's so um, he's he's the former like way back when head of innovation for like GM, but uh, he's like one of his he's got so many great quotes, and I'm surprised people don't reference him more. Uh, but one of his quotes is a, a problem well understood is half solved. You know, like he's, he's got a bunch like that, that, you know, I'm probably butchering the quote a little bit, but in essence, you, you understand it. I think it was like a problem well-defined is half solved or something like that. I mean, it's like that diagnostic piece being so critical, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, I love it. Okay. Coming back to you, please give a plug about what you're doing, what, what kind of people hire you. So, you know, if anyone's listening now and they're in your sort of market, over to you. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've, I've kind of touched on it. You know, it's, it's really about helping companies to be able to adopt growth and, and make the transition to, to really effectively executing growth. And so I work on an organizational level and it's companies probably on the low end, maybe 30 employees but all the way up, as I said, to, to a Microsoft, um, into it, like a, a lot of like bigger tech companies. And, you know, it's, it's obviously like a business unit in those companies, but it's a hard transition. And each one that I do, I get better at helping companies make it. So that's, that's where I spend a lot of time. And then from a skills development perspective, gopractice.io is the, the program I'm working on with Oleg. Nice. Okay, great. And what if someone wants to contact you? What's the best method? I know um, we sort of connect on LinkedIn, but you don't always check that as often yeah. as, as some other things. Uh, go to your website or email you. I'm or, pretty active on LinkedIn. I go I go in waves. <laughs> I have a website that's uh, seanellis.me that people can reach out to me and kind of get, lays out some of, the, some of the things I do with companies. But something just happened with my SSL certificate, so I need to figure out what's going on there because it's like I get a message that says... Uh, I did notice that. Well, I thought you were just like, doing false scarcity or something here. No, it was... Uh, yeah, that's some kind of some kind of bug through the um, web hosting company that I need to get figured out. But um, hopefully by the time this airs, I will have had that fixed. So um, seanellis.me is a, is a good place to reach out to me from. Hey, well, Sean, I just want to thank you for your time. I think there's a great chat and all the best in the future. I really like those stories. I think some of those really hit home. And um, maybe if um, people uh, enjoy this episode as much as I did, we could do a follow-up and get a bit deeper into some areas that I wanted to talk about, but, you know, just we don't have so much time. So, um, yeah, love your work and thanks so much for, for having a chat. Thanks, John. And, yeah, a couple of those stories I referenced, they can hear those episodes on the Breakout Growth Podcast. So there you have it, a delve into the world of growth from someone who was at the forefront of the movement. And Sean is such a nice guy and I can't thank him enough. 
A lot of these questions I've wanted to ask them for probably a couple of years now, and growth is the central theme for this entire podcast. So I thought we'd really need to get the general macro view of core growth strategy defined first, so we can help you put all of the pieces of the sub-elements of the puzzle together. So I hope you really enjoy that episode, which is one of our strategy-specific episodes. And of course, this follows on from Rich Mirinov's product strategy episode. So we've done now brand, messaging, media, pricing, positioning, and creative strategy. We just have segmentation, targeting strategy, sales strategy, distribution strategy, and measurement or reset strategy to go. Then it's onto more of the different channels, media or traction levers or whatever you want to call them. So once we finish all of those channels, you get a solid grounding in every area of strategy that will ensure your projects will be a success. We've got a couple more episodes though, apart from just these channel um, strategy episodes that will be coming up where we interview key people or key practitioners in like the life of a VP marketer or a CMO role or head of growth role, where hopefully you can put all of these theory and general approaches into a specific context in someone's specific growth role. So there's a lot of work to go and thanks again for following. As always, if you have any feedback or comments, make sure you DM me on LinkedIn or tag me on Twitter. The Dose of John is my Twitter handle and look for the John James from Melbourne in a black and white suit on LinkedIn. Otherwise, you can find me on Instagram with the handle Champagne Society. And remember, if you like this episode, give this podcast a review, a like, follow, whatever. It helps spread the word to others. I'm, I'm sure there's other people like you who are in need of listening to some of these episodes. So that's all for now. Thanks for listening.